The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. Grab your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And once you get there, stick a finger in Genesis 3 as well, please. Um, If you don't have a Bible, stick a hand up nice and high, and we have some fine gentlemen who have some Bibles they would love to uh, get in your hands so that you can track along with us, make sure I'm not making any of this up. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, then this Bible is a gift from us to you, and we pray that it would serve you, that you would learn more and more about Jesus, about who he is, about what he has done for us through it. We're going to start out in Ephesians 2, and then we will be in Genesis 3 in just a little while. If we could bring the lights up, too, that'd be awesome. Thanks. Can't read my notes. Just wing it, right? Hey, we are here this morning gathered together because we can sell it. This is not a, a club of perfect people. Hey, there's one more needs a Bible right over here in the kind of middle back section would be great. <clears throat> Um, This is not a club of uh, perfect, sinless people. This is a room full of people who desperately need and needed the grace of God. And so when we come to this place, we're, we're here to celebrate the fact that for, the, for most of us in this room, that we have experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And so Sunday mornings are a celebration A celebration of the mercy of God, a celebration of the forgiveness he's given us. They are joyful, exuberant. If you've noticed before, a lot of times the majority of our worship actually on Sundays tends to be a little more upbeat, a little more celebratory because that's the purpose of a Sunday morning gathering, to celebrate the good things that God has done for us. But today, (laughs) this is, I'm telling you right now, I'm warning you in advance, this is a bad news sermon. This message is going to end on a total downer. Um, And I believe it's designed to be this way. I mean, we're coming out of Ephesians 1. And in Ephesians 1, Paul declares the grandeur of the things that God has done for us. He, as we've spent a lot of time going through Ephesians 1, he's gushing over the good things God has done, the inheritance we have in him, the reality that we are his, about the things he's done, that we've been adopted, that we've been forgiven. I mean, he's going on and on about all this stuff, and he he comes out of Ephesians 1, and he's declaring hope and glory and all these things, and then he comes into Ephesians 2 and drops a bomb in everyone's lap. It's just this climb, 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 and then Ephesians 2 hits and goes, whoa! And there is incredible gravity in this particular passage. So it's not a happy sermon. It's not a popular sermon. This is not a sermon that anyone who's looking for church growth tends to put together, but it's a sermon we should have if we want individual growth in Christ, amen? And so this passage is gonna tell us things about ourselves we don't wanna know. It's going to tell us things about ourselves we don't want to look at or admit or remember, but they are nonetheless true whether we pay attention to them or not. This passage, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 in general, deals with the human condition before and after Christ. And I don't mean in the timeline like this is what humans were before Jesus came to the earth and here's what humans are like after. I mean the reality of everyone, our human condition, our nature, our state before Jesus became an active saving presence in our lives and then what it looks like after. So not just a timeline. And I'm going to tell you that the section about before Jesus, which is where we're going to spend our time today, it's not pretty. 
It's ugly, it's dark, it's disturbing. And so let's read it together. It says in verse 1, Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. God, I pray that that you would give us mercy as we look at this, that you would give us understanding of this reality, that you would give us, Lord, the ability to make honest assessment of ourselves. And I pray in particular, Lord, even out loud so that they can hear, For those that have never experienced your grace, that are not part of your family, that are not followers of you, Jesus, I pray this would wreck them. I pray, God, you would give them eyes to see the reality of our situation apart from your grace and that you would save them, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, you would just guide even my very words, Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's important to know who we are, who we were, and where we're headed. That's an important thing to know. It's an issue of identity. And identity is something that is a pervasive theme throughout the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians tells us who we were apart from Christ. It tells us who we are in Christ. And then the back half of the book of Ephesians goes on to say, in light of these realities, here's how we live since we have Christ. So the book of Ephesians could really be summed up in that word or that topic, the issue of identity. And it's important to know who we are. Not who we think we are, but the reality of who we are. John Calvin, who wrote one of the more famous and more important Christian and spiritual writings really in in history, it's called The Institutes of Christian Religion. He opens his writing up with this. He says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true, sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. It is important that we not just know who God is and what he's done, but know who we are, know where we are so that we understand our need for God. That we know who we are apart from him, where we're headed apart from him. If we don't understand the need for a savior, we're never going to call out to one. And so, for example, all of us understand the reality of the Coast Guard, do we not? We know their job. We know they're there. They're there to save lives, rescue ships, guard the coast. I mean, they're there if we need them, but, but none of us really understand the value of the Coast Guard like those people we see on Deadliest Catch who are up there in the storms, lives depending on the Coast Guard. Amen? Like those people, or, or maybe you've been in a situation, I know people who have, where you have literally been rescued by the Coast Guard. You have a completely different appreciation for the value, importance, and need for those men on those boats out there than the rest of us do. And so that's what this passage does for us. It is illuminating to us our need. And so John Calvin and others say it's important that we don't just know who God is, but we do need to know about ourselves. And I'm not talking about an inward-pointed, self-obsessed narcissism, but a literal and true and accurate self-assessment of who we are. It helps us understand our need. And so what is 
an accurate assessment of the human condition, human nature. Where is man? Well, there's generally three beliefs that are out there. Some would say there's four, one of them being perfection. No one holds to that. So we're just throwing it out. So there's three other positions where people would look at, if they were to assess and describe, this is the human condition in the world around us. There's three views. The first would say this, the first view on human nature, they would say mankind is basically good. They're basically good. Oh, we may not be as perfect as we could be, but man is good. Maybe slightly sick, maybe slightly off tune in certain areas, but as we evolve, we're getting better, and mankind is good. We're on the right track. We're doing good things, and so they would say that um, though there are flaws, that as we move forward, the good nature is overall going to eventually surpass that which is bad. And it's, can we just say, that's just hogwash, Right? Can, an amen if that's hogwash? That's a hogwash. That's ridiculous. So if mankind was basically good with just a few minor flaws that we need to work out over time, then we would be a whole lot better today than we were in days past, right? So surely by now we would have figured out things like racism, right? Or slavery or hatred or senseless violence. Surely by now we could just go to a movie and feel safe. Not at all. We're not getting better. We're kind of the same. Some cases worse, some cases better, but wait till the next generation, those might be flopped as well. Mankind is not good. The second view on human nature is this. Mankind's broken. Or, or to use medical terms, you say it's, it's sick. Mankind is sick. It, it, mankind is sick. It's not dead, still alive, but sick. And as long as we're still alive, there's hope. We just need some prescriptions. We need to change some stuff. We need to adjust some things. So, so here's the deal. Mankind is sick, but there's hope. So what we need is things like we need some good laws and legislation. That'll help bring things back around. We need good self-awareness by people. We need to let people know their potential. We need to create opportunities for people to realize their potential. We need to get mankind on the same page. We need to do some of these things. If we can get all this stuff together, we can heal this and we'll be headed in a really good direction. Now that is the opinion of the vast majority of humanity, including a lot of religion, a lot of Christianity. There are a lot of people, that's the view they hold to. We're not inherently wicked, we're not evil, we're not, we're just sick, but there's hope and we can address those things if we, and then whatever that particular person's prescription happens to be. Is that what the Bible holds? Well, the Bible teaches a little bit different. For example, here's a couple of passages, one in Jeremiah and one in Psalms. Do we have a slide for that? I had them throw that together late, but here we go. Jeremiah 17, nine says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And then David writes in the Psalms, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Think about that passage for just a second. David says, who can know our errors? Who can discern how sick we really are? And then he prays to God, please forgive me of hidden faults. That, that means literally we will never get to the bottom of our sin and wickedness. You'll never get there. We don't understand how desperate we are. And if our forgiveness of sin depended on our perfect knowledge of all of our sins, we are in trouble. He said, there's, there's sins and wickedness in me I don't even know about. God, have mercy on me. Jeremiah says, however sick you think you are, your heart's deceiving you. You're still not even there. 
And so those that would hold to that second view, mankind is sick, but there's hope. All these things they, they don't realize. We can't possibly even fully know how broken we are. Now, however, the Bible, though we may not be able to fully understand in our present condition exactly how broken humanity is, the Bible does give us the ability to truly understand its state. The Bible speaks into our world and our lives and our condition and gives us a clear but devastating word about the human condition. And now listen, before we move forward in this, I want you to hear this, okay? I don't do a ton of fire and brimstone stuff up here. Those of you that have been around for a while, you know I'd rather tell a joke in a sermon than bang a fist. Like, you, you know this about me. And so this sermon and these texts, they don't exist to make you feel bad. They don't exist to hurt your feelings or bring you down or shame you or guilt you or any of those kinds of things. This text is here so that we understand our need. This text is here so that we understand the reality of the situation we are, so that we can know our need, but also so that we might dance when God gives it. Now, this week, we're not getting to the dance part. Warning you in advance, but that's next week. But, but this is important that we understand our need. And so we introduce then the third view on humanity, and I'll refer to it as the biblical or AKA the true one. And it's this, mankind is not good. Mankind is not merely sick. Man is dead. N not in the doghouse, in the ground. Not in the ER, in the morgue. Dead. Look at Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work now in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out desires of body, mind, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. It says we're dead, but then it's talking about walking. It says, in once we lived. Like, what's the deal there, Jeff? You're just saying dead figuratively. No, I'm saying dead as in dead, dead, dead. Then, then what's with this whole lived thing? Well, even some of your translations may even say this in verse 3 where it says, among whom we all once lived. That actually translates walk. So the idea is this. Apart from God, our sin has separated us from God and destined us to absolute, total death. Physical death and spiritual death. Separation from God completely. Separation from life completely. Separation from joy, light, health, peace completely destined for torment destined for death dead but that also somehow that end result that's there has also permeated the present so not only are we headed towards death but we walk in it now so we are imprisoned to sin we walk in these things we hear the temptations of satan and we follow them we are literally apart from christ absolutely dead sin has so corrupted us we can't possibly understand how devastating and far-reaching its implications are its tentacles go infinitely further than we realize it affects our opinions our attitudes our beliefs the way we act the way we talk the way the things we do the relationships we have our view towards work our view towards the world Everything about us is completely corrupted and dead. 
And so when it says here, and then we walked in those things, what does that mean? Zombies are big time now, right? Well, they're big time in Paul's days too. This is the walking dead. This is dead men walking. You didn't see that? Sixth sense. Little kid, I see dead people, but they don't know they're dead. This is the truth. This is the reality of humanity. Dead men walking who don't even necessarily realize it. And and not just dead, but, but children of wrath. Children of wrath, destined to endure and bear the wrath of a holy, just, and infinitely powerful God. That is the human condition. You go, why? Why? Why would that be so bad? Like, what, why are we in such dire straits apart from Jesus? Why are we in that condition? And it goes back to the fall. You ever notice, we go back to Genesis 3 a lot here, don't we, at Heritage? But it's important. It's a crux moment. So look, if you will, just for a moment in Genesis 3. And you'll see all of these things playing out right before us. In Genesis 3, God had created Adam and Eve the way he designed everything to be. One of the big critiques against Christianity today is, if God is so good, then why is the world like this? It's not God's fault, it's ours. Amen? The world we live in now is the world we made. The sin and the corruption and the wickedness that's out there today is not because of God. God is not the author of sin. We have done this. We are paying the price for the rebellion against God that mankind has been a part of forever. Not what God intended. What God intended, go back to Genesis and understand the reality. God created men in incredible and perfect harmony, shalom, peace with one another. Man had peace with all of creation. There was no fearing snakes or any of that kind of stuff. It was perfect creation, no thorns, thistles, pestilence, spiders, none of that stuff. I mean, maybe there were spiders, but they weren't like they are now. Spiders are ugh now, but then wouldn't have been bad, right? I I think pestilence, I guess we'll see. But total harmony with creation. We had total harmony with each other. I mean, the Bible says that when Adam and Eve came together in that first marriage in Genesis 2, that says that man and woman were there, they were naked and they were not ashamed. And that speaks to more than just a physical condition where they were naked. What it means is there was nothing to hide. There was no need to cover anything. There was no need for any of us to hide any intimate details of our lives from one another. It was complete openness, complete intimacy, no shame at all. That's what was there. So it was harmony with one another, and then there was harmony with God. Sin had not separated us from God. We walked with God, or Adam and Eve, I should say, walked with God in harmony, depended on God enjoyed the blessings of God, and they were immense. It was perfect. And God was not a cruel dictator. He created them. He had authority over them, and they were totally aware of this. But yet he was not some cruel dictator. He gave them everything. He said, eat of any of the garden. You have dominion over all the earth. Go and fill the earth. Subdue it. He was incredibly generous. The only rule that we're aware of based on scripture is in Genesis chapter 2 verse 16 and the Lord commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree of the garden but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Now 
Read that carefully. Or let me say this, read it accurately when you do. When you read that verse, don't read it like, Adam, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die. That's not it. There's, There's no condemnation or sin or any of that at this point. There's a total harmonious relationship between God and man. So how is God talking to Adam when he says that? He's saying, Adam, I'm giving you everything. Adam, surely you can eat of any tree in the garden. But Adam, listen, Adam, don't eat of that tree. Adam, if you eat of that tree, you will surely die. Don't eat of that tree. That's not cruel dictatorship. That's loving father saying, this is the reality of what's going to happen if you cross that line. And I'm begging you, Adam, don't cross that line. I mean, my dog, I I love my dog, but he's full on puppy. He's smart, but he's stupid. You know what I mean? And so like, if I go play fetch with my dog, he'll run everywhere and grab the ball. Right now he's in a place where he thinks everybody loves him and he thinks everything is safe. So he can run anywhere, grab the ball, come back. He does not understand the reality of a road. So if he's out in a field running towards a road, I'm calling him down, screaming at him, doing whatever I have to do, even if it appears harsh at times, to grab him, stop him, get a leash on him, and pull him back and say, no, Asher, you cannot go in that road. Now, is it because I don't like my dog? Is it because I'm a cruel dictator? No. My dog licks my ice cream cone sometimes, okay? Like, I love my dog. Oh, Bronwyn, I didn't want her to hear that, but that's true. Um, If you're a dog lover, amen, you know what I mean by that, right? But here's the reality. He doesn't understand the devastating effects of a car that comes into contact with himself. He doesn't know that. He is ignorant to it. And so I tell him, no, you can run in the yard, you can run in the field, you can come into the house, you can't get on the furniture, but you can do all these other things, but you cannot go and play in that street. Asher, you're going to be hurt. That's the idea, but infinitely more so. How much more Adam? And so God's saying to him, listen, don't eat of it. Surely you will die. It's not a threat. It's a warning. This will happen. And so what happens? Well, Satan comes along in Genesis 3, and he tempts Eve. And what does he say? Eve, did God really say Did God really say that surely you're going to die? Is that what he said? Verse two, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And so he comes in and he begins to tempt Eve and he tempts her by getting her to doubt God's word and getting her to doubt the reality of the effects of rebellion against God. He's saying, what did God really say? It's tempting to God's word. And also, you're not surely going to die. It's not that bad. You're not going to die. And then he goes on to tell her, in fact, everything that you want is there. You'll be like God. Well, we know the story. Eve eats of the fruit. Adam sins as well in his reluctance to shepherd his wife and protect her from this temptation because the scriptures say he was right there with her as Satan was tempting. He did nothing. But then he also eats as well. And in that moment, everything changes. All that harmony that was in place is destroyed like that. 
There's no more harmony with nature. There's thorns, thistles. The ground that they were to work is now fighting back against them. There's now problems in the animal kingdom that we still deal with today. There is devastating effects on creation. And you go to Crater Lake on its most beautiful day, you're seeing a broken, fallen Crater Lake. You're not even coming close to the grandeur of creation that God intended here. And then the relationships with one another are instantly broken. Genesis 3 goes on to say that instantly they opened their eyes and realized their shame and they're hiding from one another and they start pointing fingers at one another. It's the woman's fault. It's the snake's fault. And suddenly those relationships are fractured and broken. And then finally as well, you know, the relationship with God is fractured and broken. That not only do they try to cover themselves, but they run and hide. And There's not honesty before God anymore. There's finger pointing and fear and accusations. Adam even says, you gave her to me. And all that harmony is destroyed, everything. Now you might ask, especially if you're new to this story, sometimes those of us that grew up in the church, we forget, you go to a stranger that's never heard these things and they're like, you mean Adam ate an apple and everything's broken? What? But look, it's not just a stupid apple or fruit or whatever it was. It's, it's more than that. I mean, the reality is this, their sin against God in disobeying his word and taking the fruit that they weren't to take, it introduced, first of all, doubt as to what is true. Is God's word totally reliable and the truth, or is there another truth out here that I can now follow? It introduced doubt as to what is right. What's best for me? Is it right that I follow God, or can I do this on my own now? And then finally, it introduced a false estimation of who man is and who it should be. It says, you're not gonna die, you're gonna be like God. You don't have to be subject to God who created you, you can be like him. No more having to be humble, no more having to be told what you do, what to do, you can be in charge and you can be just like him. And all of that came to be in that rebellion. And because of that moment, the reason we go back here so much, because of this moment, all of us are dead. That's what the scriptures say. Death entered in through this sin, and all of us have inherited that nature and that death from him. It says in Romans 5, verse 12, I think we have a slide for it. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. Adam, in that moment, in his fall, doomed all of us to death. The human condition I mentioned just a few minutes ago is here as a result of that moment. And then you go, well, that's not fair. How is that fair? Like, I wasn't even alive. How, how, is it, how should I be in this place because of something a guy did all the way back then? I mean, come on. Well, I mean, if you find that as a problem, you have to understand something. It, it's way more than that. First, first of all, um, Adam sinned. Yeah, but we all have sense, Right? Like none of us has nailed it. None of us has perfectly done it. So that argument is moot even in that. But also, second of all, if we were in that position, we would have sinned too. And you say, well, how can you say that, Jeff? Because it's the same temptation Satan throws at us all the time anyway, and we fall for it over and over anyway. Like you have fallen for these same lies a million times in your own life. What makes you think you're going to nail it back then? And then finally, there's this one. 
If you have such a hard time with the reality that we are condemned because of Adam's sin, then you might have a hard time or you should have an equally hard time later understanding that we are all saved through one man's righteousness in Christ. And that's one we should probably hang on to. Amen? But we'll get to that next week. So you go, we are condemned. And and, and this is also why it's important to understand that this is rooted in Adam, not just in our things. Because our situation, our position before God, the death that we walk in now, it's it's not just something or because of something we do. It's who we are. You have to understand this is an identity issue. It's not just the actions we did. It's not like some guy's more dead than the other because he, this guy's not doing as bad as that guy. It has nothing to do with that. This is an identity issue because here's the idea. If you went to the average person, the average Christian, and you said, what is the problem with sin? Why do we need to be saved from sin? They would probably say, and rightly so, something like, man, sin is rebellion against God and his word. It separates us from him. And we need a savior because we have condemnation now because of our sin. We need to be reconciled to God. Is that correct? Yeah, amen, that's correct. Is that all? No. That's just being in the doghouse. We've blown it. God's upset. We are separated from him. And we need to somehow have that relationship reconciled back together. That's just being in the doghouse. If you're in the doghouse, you can whimper. You can make puppy dog eyes. You can come and put the head on the lap like dogs do, and you go, oh, all right. I mean, you, maybe you could say you're sorry if you're a talking dog from a cartoon, whatever the case might be. Like, there's still actions to take. Dead people in morgues can't do anything. And that's who we are. Absolutely hopeless, dead in our sin and transgression absolutely dead. We are all in the same boat as Adam, all in the same boat as Eve. The scriptures say in Genesis 3 verse 7 that in that moment, the moment sin entered into the world, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Instantly, their relationship with one another is corrupted. Instantly, they're hiding from God. They feel guilt and shame in that very moment. There's suddenly a need to cover. There's suddenly a need to hide from one another and from God. And so they go into this work and try to cover themselves up, and then they're hiding from God. It's the same thing we do all the time. When you sin, do you not oftentimes, especially, man, do you not oftentimes feel like the need to do something to make up for it? Don't we feel that sometimes? Even if it's as simple as apology, we've got to do something to make it right. And so we will fill our lives with all sorts of coverings trying to deal with the condition that we're in as dead men walking. And it could be all sorts of things, good works, good deeds, religions, philosophies, actions, or we could look into things like relationships, money, sex, drugs, things to maybe distract us from the reality that we are. In the end, it's all covering because something's not right. And so everyone's looking for something but marching straight towards death, walking in sin, being tempted by the world, being drawn away by our own lust, and being tempted by the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. And then we hide from God. And so we either aren't truthful with God about our own condition, or we hide from him in general. And and so our sin makes us feel so guilty and so condemned and so ashamed that we feel like, "I I can't go, I can't worship this week. You ever been in a position in church where 
worship's there, but there's a sin that's still on your mind you haven't even fully repented of yet, and you feel like, I can't lift my hands in worship today. God knows. I can't do that. I can't go to church today. I can't take communion today. I know who I am. I know what's going on with me. And so maybe you are drawn to stay away. I can't do devotions this morning. I'm a mess. I need a break. I need to distance myself somehow from this thing that's happened. I need to cover up somehow for this thing that's happened. It's all the same thing. We are dead, dead, dead in our sin. And you can adopt all the bad theology you want that says that, well, man's actually good. And that's not really what the scriptures mean. But we are in the morgue. The scriptures make it clear we are dead in our sins and hopeless to do anything about it. This is the reality of it. This is the reality of our condition. And most of us have no idea. Like we said earlier, have no idea. Jeremiah, the heart is deceitfully wicked. And so many people have been deceived by their own hearts to believe, no, you're a good person. You're not as bad as that guy. You're, you're generally good. You're okay. God likes you. You give. You serve. All of these things. And this is where the Bible in Ephesians, for example, cuts through. And whether you believe it or not, mercifully cuts through and tells you, no, you're dead. You're not just sick. You're not just wounded. A, a better philosophy or a better religion or more Bible study is not going to fix this. You're dead. And it's saying this to you not to try to beat you over the head and make you feel bad about yourself. It's saying you need more than what you're doing. You need more than another Bible study or another book. You need more than another check given to a nonprofit or to a church. You need more than these things you're doing. You need more than I'll just be nicer from now on. You need a savior. And this is why the scripture over and over and over says, you must be born again. You must be born again. He doesn't say, you must do more good works. He says, you must be born again because you're dead in the morgue. And we don't even realize it, many of us. And that's this week's message. Hey, I told you, I told you in advance. I tell you what, though. In Genesis 3, there's one little piece of hope that maybe you've never seen before. And, and you theologians, you're going, Proto-Evangelium, Genesis 3.15. No, Genesis 3.20. God comes to Adam and Eve. God comes and finds Adam and Eve. Not Adam going, God, we blew it, what do we do? God comes to them and says, Adam, where are you? He addresses their sin and the reality of it. He shares with them, because of your sin, this is what the world's going to look like now. There's going to be strife. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be pestilence. There's going to be all these things. He does throw in, in Genesis 3.15, the reality of what's referred to as the proto-evangelium or the first gospel, where he says to Eve, you're going to have a descendant, and the serpent's going to bruise his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. Speaking of Jesus Christ, who will be bruised by the serpent as he goes to the cross, our sins will absolutely bruise him and leave him bloodied. But in the end, he will triumphantly defeat and crush Satan for good when he raises from the dead, defeating death. It's mentioned even there. 
But then he goes on into this. To the woman, you're going to have pain and child rearing. You're going to have pain and child bearing. Your husband, there's going to be tension and, and there's going to be fighting between that. Adam, you're going to be dealing with issues here. Work is going to be difficult. There's all these things are going on. And he, he just lays this curse out there. This is the reality of your situation. I begged you, please don't eat. Surely you will die. And Adam, you're, you're, you're dying. And then with no real transgression, or no real tra uh, transition, it goes from the curse, and the very next verse, verse 20 says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she's the mother of all living. Think about that. God's words, look at verse 19, Adam, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Adam, you're dead. I'm going to call you Eve. Adam's not stupid here. He doesn't have ADD. He's believing in the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ in that very moment. He knows I have no other hope anywhere else. I'm dead, but God has just promised that life and redemption is going to come through her. And so he turns to her, and if you read through the passages, look at it yourself. She's called woman up till now. And then he turns to her and he says, I'm going to call you Eve. Earlier, he had named her himself. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. But when he hears the promise of the gospel from God, that life will come through Eve. And that serpent that did this, that tempted you into this, will be destroyed. He turns to Eve and he says, your name is now Eve, the mother of the living, the mother of life. This is where we are today. We are dead. I don't care how many checks you've written to nonprofits. I don't care how many times you've served as a soup kitchen, how much nicer you are than your coworker. Without Christ, we are dead. But we do have hope, not in ourselves, in Jesus. And so just like Adam in that moment chose to believe God in his promise for restoration and life, we must as well. Ladies and gentlemen, listen, you must be born again. You can't just come to church. You can't just read your Bible and write a check. You must be born again. We don't say this lightly. This is not trivial. All these things that we're talking about, so serious. This is life and death reality. If you are not born again, you will never see the kingdom of God. If you are not born again, you will never be reunited to Jesus. You will never have inheritance in heaven. You will never enjoy the joy and blessing with God. If you are not born again, this least popular saying in the world, but it's true, you're headed for hell and death. It's the reality of it. But God's not saying that to just go, you're going to hell. He's saying, surely you will die. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You are dead, but there is life in my son. I looked at your condition with mercy and grace, and I realized Jeff is dead. He has no hope of ever doing anything to make up for that, and so I'm sending my son, and that's where Jesus came and lived, the better than Adam, perfect, sinless existence. He never failed. Satan tempted him in the same ways that Adam and Eve were tempted, the same ways that we are all tempted. The scriptures make that really clear. Whatever we face, so did he, and he won. 
And then he went to the cross where our sin and shame was placed on his shoulders. And he paid the penalty of death that was deserving of us. And because of him, if we believe and follow just in the same way that Adam turned in that moment and said, I believe, in fact, your name is Eve because life is coming through you. So too, Jesus Christ, we have life through him. But there's no other way. So you you got a couple of options in how you can deal with something like this when you leave. One's theoretical and philosophical. You can go, how can this be? Is this even true? I don't know. And you can make it theoretical and impersonal and all those things. Or you can look at it a little differently. You can go, you know what? God brought me here specifically today to hear that message in that church on that. I could have been anywhere else in the world, but on that day I was there to hear that text preached from God's word. Maybe God's calling me now. Maybe I need to understand the reality of my position. Maybe I need to know how desperately I need a savior. And I'm begging you, be born again. Receive Christ. Follow Jesus. Even as the scriptures say in the Old Testament, I lay before you two ways. One ends in death, one ends in life. And we plead with you, choose life. Sam and the guys are going to come up and close us in one song. There's going to be some men and women available in the back. I'll be down here off to the side. But listen, if you've not been born again or you're not even sure if you had, this is the day to know. Don't walk out of here not knowing where you're going. You must be born again. Otherwise, we are dead men walking. We're not being cavalier or entertaining about this. This is not child's play. This is real. And this is God's word. Amen. Will you stand with me? God, I pray that you would give us this moment now, Lord, that the reality and the gravity of your word would sink in. The truth of our position before you. Lord, help us to see the effects of sin, the reality of wickedness and rebellion against you. God, cut through the uh, self-deception and help us to see the reality of our position and where we stand before you. And I pray, God, for those that don't know you this morning, that you would lovingly pull them to you. God, I know there's people in this room right now that just like you did with Adam, you're coming into this room and you're saying, Bill, where are you? Steve, where are you? Jennifer, where are you? That you're, You're calling to people that you desperately want to save and draw back to you. God, don't let Satan cause them to doubt your words even now, but may they see the truth and the reality of who they are. May they choose life. Lord, may people this morning be born again. May you save. And for those of us, Lord, who have already experienced your grace and mercy that have been born again, may we sing even this song being reminded of the price that was paid that we might have forgiveness in incredible thanksgiving.